If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and the page number is going to be 1789 or something like that. Um, in your bulletin, there's a blue sheet for sermon notes, and one of the reasons to write sermon notes on there is because a lot of the people at High Point, in fact, most of our church are in small groups, and where they take that, whatever they wrote on it, and they bring it and they discuss it each week, because what we find is that it's really good to hear, but then you've got to work it in and talk about it, and uh, if you're not in a small group and you're you're considering doing that, um, there's actually a small group card in the pew in front of you there. You can fill it out, take it to the Welcome Center, and John will get you signed up straight away. Um, and we find that people grow exponentially faster in small groups. That's just what we find. I'm going to read First uh, Corinthians 15, verses 12 to, I think, 34. This is page 1789 in the Pew Bible. And I'm just going to tell you before I start this that... Um, uh, I had child number, well, my wife had child number four this week, and in our house, I'll, um, I'll pass on your encouragement, and um, there's nine people in my house. I started out the week with poison ivy on my whole face, and right now, I have kind of a cold, and so, and didn't sleep all that much, and so forth. And so, um, the sermon reading may be the only coherent part of this, so pay attention to this part, okay? Um, and if, if you're new to the Bible or whatever, the uh, First Corinthians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a Greek city called Corinth to try to help them figure out what it meant to follow and believe in Jesus. So listen, listen to this passage. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise Christ, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. And now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he had done this, then the Son himself, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. That bit in verse 29 and 30 about, verse 29 about people being baptized for the dead is sort of the conundrum interpretationally, and I had Chris post a blog um, this morning on that because I'm not going to have time to get in all that. There's too much here, and that's interesting, so go to nickgibson.org, nicknokgibson.org if you want to find the answer to that one. Um, 
the resurrection that is the general resurrection that everybody who's ever lived will be raised by God ultimately is, I think, simultaneously one of the most difficult things to believe in and yet one of the most important things Christianly to believe in. It's both of those things at the same time. Um, I think that we have a lot of trouble on some level not being really cynical about this idea that everybody who dies will live again. Um, and I think in, on some ways we would say that this is really an effect of modernity, that we, you know, we're these modern scientific people now and you know, this reeks of superstition and blah, 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 blah. There's some level of cynicism, I think, in most of us about that. But one of the things I think it's important to realize is um, cynicism about resurrection has always been a human experience. Actually, it has nothing to do with modernity. If you look in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is in Greece. He's preaching about the gospel. He's saying all this stuff about God and his relationship to creation. And he, gets, he finally gets to the point about the resurrection, and that's when he loses people to sneering, right? He says, it says in verse 32, it was when Paul started talking about the resurrection that some people sneered and others wanted to hear more. And I think that's true of two different groups of people. There's some people who hear about the resurrection and they're just going to sneer and be like, that's just stupid. And then other people are going to say, that sounds really great. And, and, I, and I think that, that there's others of us for whom we're sort of both. On some level, it sounds great. I mean, if you don't think being raised from the dead to eternal bliss with God doesn't sound good, then you're like, the, you're like that person who says that they don't like candy. Nobody believes you. You don't even believe you, you know? If, if, I mean, if you say you don't like the doctrine of the resurrection, it doesn't interest you or whatever, it's because you've already believed, you already don't believe in it. Because you think it's ridiculous, you don't find it interesting. But, the, but if it was true, you'd find it interesting. You just don't think that. Um, everybody finds it interesting. And two generations of atheists ago, the, the continental existentialists all admitted that. Jean-Paul Sartre, Camus, um, Huxley, all those people admitted that there not being a resurrection was a huge tragedy and we're just going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. That's what all those atheists openly said. Now we've just become so sophisticated that we're going to be angry about it and I don't know what to do with you. But that's... The reality is, is that we're, we, we all have, I, I think, some level, we're all a little bit like Aldous Huxley, we have some cynicism about it, and I, think, and I think all of us on some level would be very interested, or are very interested, in the idea that we could beat death, like that we could not, that could not be the last thing for us. I think that um, our, tu- our intuition has at least three responses when we hear this claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, and you are going to be raised from the dead, Right? Um, and it, it's important to recognize that this is our intuition. This is not our reason. Most people who disbelieve in the resurrection want to claim that it's an issue of reason. It's not an issue of reason. There's nothing illogical about the resurrection. The fact that something is unbelievable to you and that something is illogical are two different things. The resurrection is not the claim that we can make a square circle. Okay, it's not unreasonable. It's just hard to believe in. Our, in, our, our intuition that we feel like is based in our reason tells us that can't be, that can't be, that can't be, but it's coming from an emotional place. We just, our empirical experience says we've never seen that, that probably isn't going to happen then. And that's how we feel. And it feels like a rational thing. And so we think of it as a logical or reason-based objection, but it's not. It's an intuition. It's our gut. And our gut usually says, okay, there's three, three things to get past this. Either there's no resurrection, so I just, I just need to be a realistic person. I'm just, that's all there is. I'm just going to be one of these realistic people. My nobility is going to be that I can face reality. There's lots of people like that. You probably know people like that. You may be one of those people. Um, and there's the people who say, you know, there's nothing to hope in after death. I need to be happy, right? It's the sort of the therapeutic approach. Like, I'm going to do what I need to do to be happy, and that's what it is. And then there's what you might call the nobility approach, which is like, listen, there's, there's nothing to really hope in, but we can, I can at least live nobly, right? And that's not just Christians who pretend they believe in the resurrection who don't. I know a lot of people who are, who are not religious, who if you argued with them philosophically about why philosophically torturing a baby is wrong if God doesn't exist, they can't actually put together a syllogism that proves, it, proves it's wrong, they still say, look, I believe it's wrong, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be noble, and that's all there is to it. In fact, that was actually my dad's approach. My dad, for, for his life, um, all that I knew of it was a professing atheist. Um, not mean about it, but he was. And he said, and I, we had these arguments about why 
what validated the philosophical truth of the morality they upheld? He said, I can't defend it. He said, I, I, he said, I realized by not believing in God, it creates a significant philosophical problem. He said, but I still feel like it's wrong, and I'm going to do what I think is right because that's all I can do, right? Which leads us to, to, to three basic mental tactics in relationship to the resurrection. If we feel like we just got to be reasonable people, I'm going to be realistic, right? Then oftentimes that'll just lead to the heart tactic of skepticism. I'm just going to disbelieve this. I'm going to disbelieve other things my intuition doesn't buy into, and that's just how I'm going to be. The second is nominalism. That is, me being happy is much more important than me obeying Jesus because it's likely the resurrection is going to happen. So I'm going to do what it takes to be happy, but I'm going to do a little bit to make sure that if there is a God, something I'm going to do okay. So I'll be a Christian in name, and if anybody tells me there's no evidence in my life that I'm actually a Christian, I'll get mad at them and tell them they're judgmental. And, but bottom line, you would not know that I was interested in Jesus. <laughs> because I need to attend mainly to my own happiness. The, now, so far, you might be like, well, that, neither of those are me. That's great. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's my great fear. My great fear is, is that you and I will think those are the two main categories, and we're not in them. And we're people who believe in the resurrection. And my response to that is Bologna. Oscar Mayer, baloney. That is not true, because there's another category that we often don't think of, and that is what I'll just call fallback faith. And that is when you say you believe in the resurrection, you say you're totally in, you believe in Jesus, you follow him, he's not just your savior, but your king, your master, lord, leader, you're in. But deep down inside, there's a fairly strong sneaking suspicion eroding your hope that you are actually going to live again. And though in a lot of ways, structurally, you're sort of in the Jesus thing, you're still ordering your life so that if there isn't a resurrection, it's not catastrophic. See what I'm saying? And a lot of times, it's little things. It's, just, it's, it's bits and pieces. It's, it's risks that you don't take. It's, it's you obey to this point, but not any further. Because, because you don't want to have a spiritual investment portfolio that if the resurrection doesn't happen, you lose everything. You don't want to bet your whole life just on the resurrection. You want to figure out a way to think about Christian spirituality so you can make these sort of Christian investments in a bunch of different things and not have it all in the resurrection line so that if it turns out that doesn't happen, your life isn't a catastrophic loss. Now, here's the problem with that. You listen to Paul talk here, and it really sounds like to him, it ought to be that if there's no resurrection it's a catastrophic loss. He's talking like, well, he, act, he says it. Here's, how, here's what he says. He says, if there's no resurrection, we should be the most pitied, most ridiculous creatures on the face of the earth. That is, my spiritual investment portfolio is entirely in the resurrection. And if it turns out there's no resurrection, I do lose everything. It is a catastrophic loss. Right? And so you see, we can be in the church and we can say, listen, we're not, I'm not a skeptic, I'm not a nominalist, I'm a real Christian, but yet our faith really is a fallback faith. We stepped up to Jesus, but then as time went on, our intuition that says the resurrection can't be right, that can't be right, we have this circle guard where we begin to start hedging our bets back here, and we start making subtle adjustments so that if there's not a resurrection, our Christianity is less and less of a catastrophic loss. And I think that is what the apostle would come after us about if he was here today just as inspired by the Spirit as he was when he wrote this. And as I thought about this this week, I'm, you know, some days I'm kind of a skeptic, but I'm not totally a skeptic. And some days, some days you probably could just about get me for nominal. Certain days, not very many. But there are real days, probably some days you could string together into weeks, where if you accused me of fallback faith, that I was pretty much in but because there's a part of me that would just wouldn't hope in the resurrection, I was making adjustments so that my life wouldn't be too catastrophic a loss if the resurrection turned out to be false. You'd probably be right. 
And I think, that, I think that it's very important for us to face that because I think that that's always eating away at us. And we have to not only know it's there, but we have to be actively resisting how our sinful nature presses this intuition that the greatest promise we are given in Christ really isn't going to happen. So what I want to do for a few minutes is talk about just why the resurrection matters. Why it's real and why it matters. And I'm going to spend the significant majority of the time as on why it's real. Based on why we lose hope. Because I think, here's the thing, um, we don't have to lose hope in the resurrection. There is an answer to be spoken to that rebellious intuition that says we can't really believe this. But also, we, we can't lose hope in the resurrection. The resurrection, it, our trust that God will win over death, that all of his promises are going to happen, is what has a, a focusing and strengthening and inspiring and empowering work inside of us that you cannot replace with anything else. There is no substitute to the motivational strength to live for Jesus that comes from a very deep conviction that you will awaken on the far side of death in the kingdom of the one great God. If you have any wonder about the New Testament's position on resurrection, you can pull up this slide online when it gets put up. But, but all through Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, there's constant emphasis on a belief in the resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection. And that's when a lot of stuff is going to happen. In Matthew 22, there's a group called the Sadducees that don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus refers to them as badly mistaken. When he meets Martha after Lazarus has died, he tells her, he says, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. So fundamental to his character, he says, I am the thing. I am the resurrection and the life. He believes in me will live even though he dies. Right? In Acts 4, 2, it says that the, the nature of what the apostles were preaching was they were proclaiming Jesus in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And Luke 20 says one of the reasons why people in the resurrected state will never die is because they're sons and daughters of the resurrection. And in Luke 14, 10, that's that passage where Jesus says, you know, you, you should have parties. Parties are good. You should have parties. And when you have a party, here's what you should do. You should invite people who are like really poor, just out of prison, mentally ill. You know, you should invite those people over to your house and have a party because parties are fun. And here's why you should invite those people, because those people can't do a thing for you. And he, and he says, you know, you know what will happen? You'll be repaid. They won't repay you, but you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What is he saying? He's saying every time you throw your money down a rat hole to help somebody who's not, you just know isn't going to get helped, that is you professing faith in the resurrection. Right? And he says, you'll be repaid, but you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That is, you will see no return on your investment until then, probably. And if there's no resurrection, your whole, all your investment will be a catastrophic loss. And that is exactly the risk and the bet that faith has to be. And the minute it shrinks back from, you're willing to put everything on one bet, trusting in one God, not hedging at all, but having it all into one thing. Only that can can be Christian faith, and only that can produce in you what Christian faith is meant to produce. Okay, so let's look at these two things. One is the resurrection is real, or why we lose hope in the resurrection. Why, why do we have such a hard time? When I say we, I just mean this is common to humanity, to all people, whether you're religious or not, whether you're in Madison or rural, whether you're whatever, Democrat or Republican, everybody has this nagging difficulty with being all in and trusting in the resurrected life Jesus promised. Why is that? And apart from the fact that it's just foreign to our experience, um, well, I think part of the issue here, here is that we don't really believe there's any credible reason for delay. The, the issue with the resurrection is the same issue in the problem of pain. And it's not an issue of a, of a reasoned argument. Most, most people do believe 
that the, the objection to Christianity for suffering, right? That if God is good and God is all-knowing and they're suffering, then that can't be, and therefore Christianity is false. Um, that is not a, a reasoned or logical objection. There are any number of perfectly rational, complete Christian answers to that that are logically perfectly valid. The problem is, when, you, when you're stuck in that objection, you don't find those answers credible. It's not that they're logically false. They're perfectly logically valid. But, but we don't find them credible. Why? Because the real thing behind the problem of suffering is the enormous emotional freight where we simply cannot accept all the suffering in the world. And so no matter what the answer is, no matter how philosophically valid it is or how right it is, it doesn't matter because nothing emotionally can seem credible in the face of genocide and rape and torture and pillaging and gen- I mean, just, you just go through all this stuff. What, could, what answer could possibly make you go, oh, okay, I got it. Because of the emotional freight we feel compelled to feel because of the suffering of others or be, that we naturally do because of our own. And see, as long as we think that that huge thrust not to trust God in this thing is rational, as long as we'll deceive ourselves and allow ourselves to be deceived, that's ultimately a rational objection and not an emotional objection based on our, on our intuition. No answer is ever going to be good enough. But once we realize, wait a second, this is not an issue of logic. The Christian answer is perfectly rational. We, I just don't believe it. I just don't buy it. That's your intuition. That's, that's not reason. And you see, it's the same thing in the area of the resurrection. Why is resurrection so difficult? Because why is it delayed? Right? These people had heard about Jesus rising from the dead 20 to 30 years previous. They'd watched a lot of people die. None of them rose from the dead. Isn't it much more rational to believe that there's some kind of spiritual resurrection or that just like in other Greek God stories that the gods decided to raise this guy Jesus from the dead as a demigod, but he's just going to leave the rest of us in Hades and maybe there's no resurrection at all and who knows. So Christianity becomes just a good philosophy with some good moral underpinnings and some good moral stories and we all have a great little fallback faith and don't really believe in the resurrection. There's no power. Religion creeps in. Self-righteousness and moralism win the day. Everybody hates us. We hate each other. Right? Now, the, the answer in this passage to the problem of delay is— and, okay. Cliche warning, okay? All right? Here's, here's the answer. You're going to hate this answer, okay? God has a plan. God has a plan. That's the answer. Let me explain a little bit. God has a plan. That is, he says, listen. He says, in the Bible it says that death, destruction, and treason came into the world through Adam, through one man. And when he sinned, and he turned away from God to be his own man, to be his own God, to be his own, to build his own kingdom, there entered into the world a process of death that has reigned throughout the whole world all the way up until this day. It was a multi-thousand-year process of degradation, okay? And he said when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he introduced redemption and resurrection into the whole thing. And just as Adam created the process of destruction and degradation, so now Jesus has come in and begun the process of redemption and restoration. And there's no reason to believe that is going to work out faster than the process of degradation introduced through Adam. He said, and then he says right after that next verse, everything in its proper time, right? And then what does he say? First Jesus, the first fruits, right? That is, Jesus came, he came incarnate, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, he started off the process of redemption. Then, ultimately, Jesus will return for those who belong to him. Then, and he goes through like a five-step process. Ultimately, everything being put under God, and God being all in all, and everything being, un- all the destruction being done, undone, and all the redemption being done, right? It's a process. Now, here's the problem with that. Here's the response you might be having. Okay, okay, whatever. But here's the thing. The priority 
of preventing death and preventing suffering and preventing radical injustice and preventing degradation of children, those have to—you cannot just put off those priorities. I mean, those are really important priorities. What can be more important than, like, not letting somebody be tortured to death, right? I mean, honestly, how can the process be that kind of long and him apparently not do anything about those things until way down the line? And the answer to that question is that— Because he makes decisions just like you make decisions, just better. Whenever you make a decision with competing priorities, if you're a good decision maker, one of the questions you always ask, either in business or family or whatever, is which of these priorities, when I make the decision, the result is irrevocable? I can never make up for it and I can never change it. Once the die is cast in this thing, it's cast. And I can never get it back. You always should ask that question first. Even if on other grounds you wouldn't think that was the highest priority, that always has to be the highest priority. What is irrevocable? And what isn't irrevocable? What can be restored? And if that's the case, good decision makers are usually going to put the irrevocable thing as the highest priority, even if you wouldn't otherwise think it would be. Let me me give you a counterfactual. Let's say you've got a 14-year-old girl, right? And you kind of hear through the grapevine that she took a couple hits off of a bong last weekend, right? And you're just kind of like, oh my gosh, right? And so you're trying to figure out what to do. And so you're like, okay, I could, I'm just going to go, you know, who knows what kind of trouble she's going to get in. Maybe she's doing blah, 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 and I'm just going to go in there and confront her, right? And so you get ready to do that, and then you realize that this isn't going to go well. Because you're going to accuse her, she's going to deny it, you don't have a smoking gun, you're going to yell at each other, she's going to say you don't understand her, blah, 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 right? It's not going to go well. Even though your top priority is to do what's best for your kid and to stop this and to protect her from harm and all these really important things, what you realize is you can't win her heart this way and you don't have what you need. You actually need the smoking gun and you need to wait. And so you have to sit back and you've got to go on, you've got to let her do blah, blah, until you're until you re- until you have the smoking gun and you're ready for the real confrontation and you wait for that time where you can set it up so that you can go after her heart, not her behavior, but her heart. And you can try to show her what's happening inside of her. And so you can confront her, and she's like, no, I didn't know a lot. And then you show her that she lied, and you're like, listen, I don't, give a, I don't give a stink about that plant. What I care about is your heart. Do you see how it's darkening? Do you see how you lied to your—not just to me, but to yourself? Do you see how you're, you are lying to Do you know where this is leading? Do you know, and why? Because you're, you're trying to win the heart. If you get the heart, the plant will take care of itself. All this other—the healthy choices, blah, 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 boys. You've got to get that heart. And so you've got to have the smoking gun. You've got to line these things up. And even though having intelligence on your daughter wouldn't be the number one priority, if you get in there and you start this process, it's irrevocable once you start it. So you've got to be ready to go when it happens. So the thing that wouldn't normally be the top priority has to be, because once you cast the irrevocable die, you can't redo it. And so things that would normally be higher priorities become later priorities because because of which ones are irrevocable and which ones are not irrevocable. Now, bring that into salvation history. One of the reasons why we do not buy into the idea of God having a plan or a process, the reason why that is a blip on our radar, radar screen of um, unacceptability is because what we think of as irrevocable simply isn't what God thinks of as irrevocable because of their emotional freight. You see, if there is a resurrection and if God is God, there is absolutely nothing irrevocable about death. Now, how does that change when the number of deaths increase rationally? I know you feel bad about it. I know that it hurts your feelings. I know that you're angry about it. But if a life can be restored by God completely forever, everything that is lost be given back plus a thousand times more, and what's the difference rationally speaking, if it's one life or 50 billion. See, there's no, rational, there's no rational difference. There's a huge emotional difference. I'll start telling you a story about a little girl who had her eyes gouged out by Nazi officers and how God let that happen, and we'll all cry. And rightfully so. 
But rationally speaking, there is nothing irrevocable about death. There's nothing irrevocable about torture. There's nothing irrevocable about rape. There's nothing irrevocable about injustice. There's nothing actually irrevocable for a God that resurrects about anything except one thing. The one thing that God himself cannot change because he would never be willing to change. That is the eternal final state of his rule and the salvation and damnation of every soul. That is the single and only irrevocable priority. When God becomes king fully and completely, the irrevocable die of the eternal destiny of every single human being will be cast. You can't go back on any of that. You can't change any of that. You can't heal any of that. You can't undo any of that. It is done forever. And therefore, every revocable priority can wait on the basis of that, no matter how astoundingly terrifying, rationally speaking. Rationally speaking. Now, you might not believe that. You might not think that that is reality. But there's nothing incoherent about it. Its coherence within itself is perfectly rational. There's no problem within the Christian message if you allow the Christian message to describe itself on its own grounds. The reason we have such a problem with it is because of the emotional, intuitional freight of suffering for a lot of us, namely our own suffering, and then it's fun to pull in the horse of the world's suffering to validate our own suffering and how God is awful and how God should be better to us. And if we want to stay a Christian, then we kind of say, well, God ought to do really nice things to us because I put up with this. You know, if we stay in the bad marriage or if we leave, we go, like, oh, I'm perfectly justified not to believe because God is awful. But you see, the whole, the whole basis of the divine logic here, the reason there is a process and a plan, is so that the first irrevocable priority always comes first. Now listen, if you don't believe in heaven and hell, and if you don't believe in salvation, and if you don't believe in God's redemption, and if you don't believe that God is going to be king over a sinless kingdom, and if you don't believe that's his ultimate plan, and if you don't believe in any of that stuff, then of course you don't believe in any of this stuff. But you don't believe in it because you don't believe in it. You don't believe in it. It's not that you, believe, you don't believe in it because it's wrong. It's not because you don't believe in it because it's incoherent. You don't believe in it because you don't believe in it. Which some people would refer to as circular logic and not rationally valid. You see, once you identify the fact that God has a perfectly rational reason for what he's chosen to do by prioritizing the eternal salvation of people, number one, to maximize to the absolute highest level the number of people who are redeemed. And if you recognize that everything that so emotionally stirs us and should stir us, and we should work to alleviate, Jesus worked to alleviate it. He healed tons of people. He did as much suffering alleviation as he could, but never to put aside the one central irrevocable priority of salvation. Same way we should live. We should do everything we possibly can to alleviate suffering. We shouldn't rejoice and be like, oh, that'll be taken care of later. No, we should do everything we can to work on it, but not to get mad at God to say, well, you know, oh, this is what we should focus on. No, we focus on this while we focus mainly on his one irrevocable priority. That is the salvation of the maximum number of people. He waits in order to save because when he comes, there will be no more saving. And once you recognize that within the Christian message that's perfectly rational, whether you believe it or not, whether you believe it or not, it's perfectly coherent, then what you have to accept, I think, reasonably, is that your objection is emotional. And the emotional objection is based on the fact that you simply don't believe in God. Because if God exists... And God is who the scriptures say he is. Everything follows perfectly rationally from there. So if you don't, it's because you don't, it's not that you believe so much in suffering, it's you don't believe in God. You simply don't believe there is a God who can restore on the level of what was lost. And you see, when we believe that, those of us who claim to believe in Jesus, we can see that sneaking corrosion for what it is. 
We're not, we're, we're not, it's not this hidden truth that we really have to face. The, 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 the secular naysayers are actually right all along, and they've been saying this, and we've put it off because sentimentally we want to believe in Jesus and go to heaven and be moral and, 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 the, and the world that makes sense for us. And, but we're going to have to face this, this sneaking scientific fact inside of us that God isn't really there and that even if he is, he's wicked. And oh, 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 the corrosion. No, we can see it for what it is. We emotionally have an enormously hard time with the delaying of the redemption of suffering because of God's irrevocable priority in the process of salvation. That is enormously hard for us to bear. It is enormously hard for us to watch. It is enormously hard for us to endure ourselves. It is enormously enormously hard for us to be bold enough to stand up and actually say what Scripture says about it. And it is also, we're also way too lazy to do all we can do about it. We'd rather just be mad about it. Uh, Andy Stanley um, put out a book recently called Deep and Wide, and he says, one of the most important things about people's faith, for them to grow in their faith, it's not the event that destroys people's faith. It's their interpretation of the event that destroys people's faith. It's not the event. Tons of people who've been through the most horrific events believe in and love God more deeply than they ever had before. And lots of people who've been through basically nothing hate God's guts. It's not the event. It's their interpretation of the event. In 68, there was a, um, a young boy who went to Sunday school class at the Lutheran church, and he said to his Sunday school teacher, does God know which finger I'm going to lift before I lift it? And his Sunday school teacher said, yeah, God knows everything. He said, he held up the Life magazine that had come out that week um, with these children from Biafra, I think is the way to pronounce it, which was a, a separationist state in Nigeria that only lasted for two years in which a million people were killed by either starvation or war in two years. And he said, well, then what is God doing about these people? And he didn't like the answer he got. And he never went back to church. And he never gave anything to charity. And he was the most famous billionaire in America until he recently died. But yet, not all that different. Um, you know, this is, this is a Pray for the Persecuted Church Sunday. Um, recently, I was reading through the, the testimonies of the journal entries of, um, of the Western missionaries massacred in the Boxer Rebellion in the summer of 1900. I don't know if you know this, but in my office, there is, um, there's a newspaper report of all the missionaries that were killed. Um, in the October um, in the October issue of one of the um, Shanghai magazines, and it sits there because I had an aunt, um, a great 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 aunt, a great great aunt who was on a bus, and the boxers just overlooked her. She would have been killed. She's a missionary in China, and she sent back this newspaper article to some of her supporters in Norwich, New York, and so I ended up getting a copy of it. Bunch of her friends, and just as piles of people killed, 188 missionaries in just a few days. 30, more than 32,000 native Chinese were killed by their fellow countrymen because Christianity was seen as a Western thing. And the West, Westerners had, had imperial, imperialistically devastated China. The 1800s were just the worst time ever in China. The Japanese oppressed them, the Westerners oppressed them, and they'd finally had enough of these boxers in which they went and killed everybody they could. And, um, and so I was, I was reading the journal entries of some of these missionaries. They have some of their very last before they're killed entries. This one woman named Lizzie Atwater, this, is what she, this was her last, I think this was 12 days before she was killed. She, she wrote this letter. Dear ones, I long for sight of your dear faces, but I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near, and he will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there still seemed a chance of life, but God has taken away that feeling. And now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over. And oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give him to me in heaven. And my dear mother will be glad to see us. And I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to the earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God with which passes understanding. I must keep calm in these still hours. 
I do not regret coming to China, but I'm sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, have been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. I used to dread the separation, and if we shall escape now, it will be a miracle. I send my love to all of you and to the dear friends who remember me. She and her husband and her infant child were hacked to death with dull blades 12 days later by the boxers. And when her parents in Oberlin, Ohio, were told of her death, one of them is said to have said through their tears, I do not begrudge them to China. We gave them to that needy land, and China will yet believe the truth. There's another missionary from Australia named David Barrett who said this about his coming execution. He said, Extermination is exaltation. Extermination, meaning his own. Extermination is exaltation. Think about that. You kind of have to be all in to say that, don't you? I mean, what he's saying was, saying, when they kill me, came here, I told them about Jesus, and they're going to watch me die. And when I die for Jesus, Jesus is going to be exalted. They are going to see that, and it might affect one of them. When John Patton was um, going to the New Hebrides, um, he was told, now you know when you go to the New Hebrides, they're going to eat you, right? I mean, and this isn't speculation. The last two Scottish missionaries that went to the New Hebrides, they, there was a, there's a journal entry. New missionaries went ashore. New missionaries were eaten. Right? I mean, this is not, right? And he's like, listen. So? Jesus is redeeming the world. The people of the New Hebrides apparently need redemption. They eat people. This just makes it more important to go there. They may eat the first eight people who go there, but at one, they will not eat, and they may listen to him. And if they're going to eat the first 12, then I'll be number three. And at some point, they may listen. Now listen, you, you, there's only a certain kind of belief that gets you rationally to that point. That is, a wholesale belief in the resurrection of the dead and the single irrevocable priority of God for the redemption of all who would possibly believe at any cost to himself, to his son, to his beloved church. The interpretive principle, so what's the interpretive principle? How do you get there? The interpretive principle is Jesus. What did, how did Jesus handle the delay of God? Exactly like we would think. God had a plan. He had a part in it. He played his part in it. He paid any price. He alleviated what suffering he could, but he recognized the, prim- the primary action had to be the glory of God and the salvation of all who would believe. That was the irrevocable priority. He lived it out the best that he could. He passed it on to the next people, and he released us into that ministry. He, he, and he trusted himself to the Father and to his resurrection power. Jesus is the interpretive principle. How do we make sure we interpret our, our, what happens? You look to the Savior. He interprets it. He clarifies it. When that sneaking suspicion is coming in, when that emotional erosion comes in from our intuition that we can't really believe in this, that we need to set up a Christian life for ourselves that's a fallback faith, that if for some reason there isn't a resurrection, it won't be catastrophic. That is exactly the moment that Jesus has to be looked to. Exactly the moment. Really quickly, the resurrection, why it matters. It, it matters, right? I mean, he says, he says, listen, if I risk my life every day for Jesus, that matters. Why, why, why do I do that if there's no resurrection? There's no reason to do that. And then he turns to them, he says, listen, you guys need to realize that bad company corrupts good morals. You need to turn back to Jesus. And now, why does he stick that in right there? That's kind of a weird verse to stick in right there. You see, the reason he does that is because obedience is just as much a risk, right? When we, when we obey, 
We have to be told to obey. We're obeying Jesus, and that's a risk. You might say it this way, that the big risk Paul's talking about is the risk of danger, right? He, so he risks everything at one moment. Well, what's obedience? It's risking something at every moment. I don't know which is harder. But both our ability to risk for the redemption of others and our willingness to obey in everything we know how to obey, both of those are risks in that we risk something in order to trust God that in final resurrection, that which we risk either in obedience or in danger will pay off. Here's a couple of questions we can ask ourselves. The question, so the question is, you come to the end, are we people with, who believe in a resurrection gospel or are we a people with fallback faith? Forget about the secular people and that don't believe in the resurrection. Of course they don't believe in the resurrection. Do we believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in a resurrection gospel or do you have a fallback faith? Here are a few questions. Is your faith a fallback faith? If you found out that the resurrection wasn't going to happen, would you, would you feel that that was catastrophic? Would you change something in your life? If you found out the resurrection wasn't going to happen, would you change anything? See, the answer should be yes, I would change a lot. Paul's saying, if there was no resurrection, I would change a lot. So the question is, in your life, if you found out the resurrection was not going to happen, would you change anything? And if the answer is no, you have a fallback faith. You already don't believe in a resurrection. Your life is already ordered that way. If you found out there wasn't a resurrection, you wouldn't change a lot of stuff. You don't believe in the resurrection, not down to your toes, right? Questions such as this would point to fallback faith. If you believe that there's such a thing as going too far with religion, if you say stuff like that, I don't mean doing wrong stuff in the name of religion, but if you just think, it's just, so-and-so is just too religious, they're just too into God. If you say things like that, you probably have a fallback faith. If you believe that it's okay for you to retire from spiritual investment, you're old enough, you've served the church a lot of years, you've done it, let's the next generation do stuff, you, you, you probably have somehow slipped into a fallback faith. Because your last years ought to be your biggest investments. You have the most to give. You've learned the most you've, you've lived. And, and you might not think everybody's waiting to listen to you, but there's, there are things that you can do. Why would you stop if you... When you retire, that means you start cashing in your investment. If you do that while you're still alive, that means you don't believe ultimately in the resurrection, right? You're, 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 you're saying, I'm going to cash in. I've already made my investment. I'm going to cash in now while I'm alive. Why? Because I fear I won't be able to fully cash in the full weight of that investment in the next life. I'm not referring to actual retirement. I hope you understand this. Even though we could talk about that, and we'll probably someday. Does spiritual investment or earthly consumption usually win out when they compete for your time and money? If you've got some time and money, and you can choose to either make some spiritual investment or you could do some kind of earthly consumption, what wins? Is there one that wins the majority of the time? That should tell you something about how you believe in the resurrection or don't. And do you have trouble investing spiritually or financially where there's little hope for any payoff that you can see? Right? Like, if you're cool with spending money on missions that goes to a place where things are going really well and you can feel like you were part of that, then great. Yeah, you'll do that. You can do that with a fallback faith. It's, when, it's, it's like sending a missionary to the Muslim world where you're going to spend a pile of money and you just know nothing's going to happen that you're ever going to see. You're just going to do it because it's right. Like, you should work for the redemption of those people. doesn't matter if they don't believe. doesn't matter what it costs. Or what about the, the, the habitual, generationally broken family poor? Kids that have none of the advantages. They're already screwed up at like nine. They're half malnourished. They don't think linearly. They haven't been nurtured. They don't know what a man looks like. Just, just, I mean, you pour all kinds of money, all kinds of programs, pour millions of dollars in them. They're not, not going to get any better. Do you still want to spend money on them? Do you want to spend money on that kid? Do you want to spend time with that kid? He's going to be a screw-up. Very little hope anything's going to happen with him. You see, when, when, when we don't care about lost causes anymore, we're not willing to pay any cost for a chance. There's a level on which we don't really believe in the resurrection. There's a level on which. Here's the second question. One, is your life both pitiable and inspiring to those who don't believe? You see, if he says, if the resurrection doesn't happen, we're the most to be pitied. That means that people who don't believe in the resurrection should pity us. They should look at our choices, look at what we do, look at what we think, look at how we act, look at how we parent, look at how we live, look at how we stay married, look at how we do all that stuff. They should look at us and they'd be like, those people are dumb. 
They should pity us. They should be sad for us. They should be those poor religious dupes. I can't believe they spend that. They act that way. They live that way. I can't believe she stays in that marriage. I can't believe that they're, they adopted another kid. I can't believe that they did this. I can't believe that she's going down to that thing when she could go have a pedicure with us. I, why do they do that stuff? People should look at you and pity you. They should pity us. And then quietly, they should be like, but they kind of inspire me. That's how people should feel about us. They should pity us, and yet on some undeniable level, they should be inspired by us. How did you do on those two questions? I didn't do very well. How did you do? If you didn't do very well, here's the next question. I find this one more encouraging. If you did poorly on those two questions, is God increasing your faith your number one priority? Is God increasing your faith, increasing your faith in the resurrection, increasing your faith in him, your number one priority? That's the only reasonable result. If we believe in Jesus, we don't want to have a fallback faith, and we know we do. The hope of the resurrection, the hope we can have and the hope we must have, is summed up and taught most in, the, in what we call the ordinance of baptism. We're going to do one this morning. You guys, we have in between services stuff. There were two in the last service, but we ought to see this. It ought to be in the life of the church, and so we're going to have one this morning. Listen to how Paul sums it up in Romans 9. This is 3 to 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us. Oh God, would you help us? Would you increase our faith? Would you cause us to be, to be in places and hearing words and reading scripture and receiving prayer and, and engaging in anything that we know that you have provided for us that could, you could use to affect the increase of our faith so that we could be a pitiable people to those who don't believe in the resurrection, but that we would be an inspiring people to them. A people for whom the resurrection is our great victory and its, and its loss would be our most catastrophic loss. And we pray that you would help us to celebrate this as we celebrate baptism and that we would constantly be turning our minds to what it teaches Help us to be a resurrection people, God, and to believe in a resurrection gospel. Amen.